0: One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light.
1: Failing to understand the difference between the word tribulation and the word wrath is one reason that many believers gravitate toward a pre-tribulation rapture mindset. On this episode of Revealing the True Light, I intend to reveal the true light concerning the coming of the Lord and our catching away to meet him in the air. And I believe it will help us immensely to differentiate between those two words, to show the distinctive meaning of those two words. So let's break it down now. Tribulation, what does it mean? If you go to the dictionary, it means hardship grievous trouble, severe trials, overwhelming temptations, afflictions, or suffering. But if you go to the dictionary definition of wrath, it means fierce anger, resentful indignation, or it can mean the vengeance or punishment that comes as a result of that deeply resentful indignation. So they do not mean the same thing. I'm going to focus on the word tribulation first, and then if we have time, I'll focus on the word wrath. If not, we'll do another episode. But I want to start by saying I personally have faced many tribulations over the last 50 years I've served God. I was saved in 1970, And it wasn't long after that that I started facing trials and tribulations and temptations. Jesus never said we would escape that, but I have never faced the wrath of God. A child of God, sincere in devotion to God, doesn't face the wrath of God. It's two different things. We cannot confuse them. Now, they may dovetail together in that period of time at the end of this age where judgments are falling on the earth but they're not one and the same thing. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus gave us an assurance. He said, in the world, you will have tribulations. So you can count on it. It's going to come. It doesn't mean you want to have faith for it. It doesn't mean you want to believe for trouble in your life, but it does mean you're not surprised when it comes. And then Jesus gave us tremendous insight." in one of his first main parables in Matthew chapter 13. That chapter is full of the parables of the kingdom. Some say there are seven parables. Others say there are eight parables of the kingdom because they separate a statement at the end. You should read Matthew 13. It is a fabulous series of metaphorical stories that describe quite often what God is going to do in this hour that we're living in right now but he starts with the parable of the sower. And of course, if you have read it, you understand the symbolism. If you haven't, Jesus is referring to himself as the sower who sows the seed of the word of God in the lives and hearts of people. And remember, seed has unlimited growth potential. And the seed of God's word is the container of the life of God that is growing us into a future and a destiny that is indescribable. And there's no way that you can put a cap on it. You can't say it's going to stop at a certain point because of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. I don't know what awaits us, but the seed of the word of God has been planted in my heart. And there's four kinds of ground. Jesus talked about wayside ground, which was the hardened earth on the outer perimeter of a field that's been trodden under the foot of man. And because of that, it's impervious to seed. And then he talked about stony ground and thorny ground and good ground, and referred to different types of conditions in human hearts that relate to those depictions. And when he got to the explanation of what stony ground represented. It ties in with what I have to say. He said, he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. I want you to underscore that in your mind, that the one who has a heart like stony ground with a thin covering of earth on it receives the word with joy, it's planted in that person's life. And he's joyful about it. He rejoices. I'm a Christian now. I'm going to serve God. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures. And that's another key word. He endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he's offended or the New King James Version says, immediately he stumbles. And the word offended is a key word. Store those words in your mind. Tribulation, offended, those are important words. Jesus never gave believers hope that we would escape the tribulation on an individual scale in our lives personally. He never gave us hope that we would escape tribulation personally, individually, and he never gave us hope that we would escape tribulation in a global sense or a corporate sense for the whole church. In fact, in his intercessory prayer for believers in John chapter 17, I want you to listen to this closely. He is praying for the church to come that will be born on Pentecost and then for the next 2,000 years has been approximately the church would be in this world. And he says in verses 14 and 15, I have given them your word. He's talking to the father. And he says, the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now listen closely to the next line. Verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. If the pre-tribulation rapture was a reality, he would have said, Father, I pray that before the last period of tribulation in this world, when things will escalate to a horrible degree, that you'll take them out of the world. But instead, he said, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. The King James just said that you should keep them from the evil and both are true, that his keeping power can keep you from evil and his keeping power can keep you from the plots and plans of the evil one, the wicked one, Satan. Here's some more biblical info that supports everything I've said so far about tribulation. Right after Paul was stoned at Lystra, he came together with a number of of the disciples. The Bible said, when he had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and he strengthened the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, continue in the faith, and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. That's Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 22 he said we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. And that's not only the kingdom to come in its fullness, in the fullness of the glory of the kingdom coming to earth, but that's entering into the kingdom right here, right now. Living in the kingdom on a day-to-day basis sometimes causes backlash, I call it backlash because if you do anything significant for the kingdom-winning souls, getting people healed or delivered, sometimes there's going to be satanic backlash. That just goes along with it. Just like Paul got stoned, but there wasn't something wrong with his faith. He exhorted them to continue in the faith, and he didn't say that he failed to stay in the faith, and that's why the problems happened to him. Then to numerous individuals in the Roman church, he gave scriptures in the epistle to the Romans that include the word tribulation. Now, this was a large gathering of believers in Rome, and it was a very persecuted church because, uh, well, that was the seat of the Roman government and they had to put their foot down with regard to Christianity there. And you can read the horrible treatment of Christians in some of the historical books that have been written. But to that church, in the epistle to the Romans, Paul writes things like this. In chapter 5, verse 3, he said, we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope makes not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit that He has given us. He never shunned it. He said, we glory in tribulations. We're chosen of God. We're anointed of God. We're the light of the world, so darkness is going to fight us. We glory in tribulations. And then in the 8th chapter, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, verses 35 through 39, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the first thing he said was, Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, did you hear what I said? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He never said that love would prevent tribulations from being our lot in life at times, but nothing can separate us from his love, even if we're in the midst of tribulation. And then he caps it off in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, where he exhorts us to be patient in tribulation. And that word patient means much more than just putting up with problems. It means endurance perseverance, refusal to give in, refusal to give up, refusal to throw in the towel, be patient in tribulation. But I do have a comforting word, and that is the word comfort that appears in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, that declares that God comforts us in all our tribulations. And then I've got to mention this. Not only does God comfort our hearts with his peace, with his mercy and grace and love poured out on our lives. But let me take you to the book of Revelation because we're going to need to focus on that book later on in this teaching, either in this episode or the next one. In the beginning of the book of Revelation, listen how John introduces himself. He says, I, John, who am your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. So he groups all of that together, tribulation, kingdom, and patience. And he said, I'm your companion. I'm going through this. He could have said, I'm blind. They plucked out my eyes. They stuck me on an island by myself. I'm living in total abject poverty. I go through misery every day. He could have expanded on that, but he just said, I am your brother and companion in tribulation. He didn't say, I'll have to suffer this, but you'll be exempt. He said, we're companions in this thing. On into the book of Revelation in chapter 7, he sees 144,000 Jews that are sealed with the seal of the living God, which is a phenomenal revelation. I'll teach on it someday on my other podcast, Discover Your Spiritual Identity. But he saw not only the 144,000 Jews who were sealed, but a multitude, a great multitude of Gentiles of every nation and kindred and tongue and people and culture. And he was asked the question, who are these? And he responded, you know, sir, you know. And the response to him was, these are those who came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. A multitude, a great multitude of people out of all nations that were clothed in white robes. Who are these and where did they come from was the question he heard and he didn't offer an answer. He said, well, you know, and he said, these are they. The one who was speaking with him said, these are they who came out of, not who escaped, but who came out of great tribulation and have washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, the complete Jewish Bible translates it a little different, Now I want to include this. The complete Jewish Bible renders this passage this way Revelation 7 14. John answered and said, You know, and then he told me, the one who was speaking to him in the vision, these are the people who have come out of great persecution. These are the people who have come out of the great persecution. They have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the Lamb. The great persecution. That must be something that will exceed anything that's ever been done against the Jewish nation. Even the horrendous treatment they received at the hands of Hitler. Think of that. The great persecution. Now, with the word persecution in your mind, let's back up to the Beatitudes. The first seven Beatitudes are wonderful, edifying, heartwarming. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How intense is that? And then they become something. They fill a role in this world. Number seven is blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Work walking up a mountain slope, and it's getting better with every step, it seems. But then beatitude number eight, it's actually two blessed statements combined together into one. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Have I convinced you yet? Have I convinced you yet that sometimes, certainly not all the time, certainly not every day, certainly not every year or decade of your life, but there is going to be a time of persecution from time to time for the people of God as a whole. And right now in the world, there are some hot spots of persecution. North Korea. North Korea is a horrible place for someone to dare and profess Christianity. China is becoming just as bad, and it has been terrible and horrible in persecuting the church. And many have died in China. And then there's other places as well throughout the world where you can't tell people Uh, you'll escape the tribulation. They're already going through tribulation. We're blessed in the Western world, but this concept of a pre-tribulation rapture only really works in a Western culture or in a culture where there's relatively little persecution of Christians going on. In Islamic nations, in India, I just got a report just a couple of days ago about Uh, some of the people in this radical Hindu group barging in a church and beating up all the congregants with baseball bats just this week or just within the last week or two. You can't tell them that they'll escape tribulation. They're already going through it. Now let's jump to Matthew. And I can tell already we're not going to be able to focus on the word wrath. It will be the next program, the next episode. But this is Matthew 24, and there's somewhat parallel passages to be found in Mark 13 and Luke 21, but they're not as extensive. They're not as detailed as Matthew 24. So we're just going to focus on that chapter. And I'm going to read it from the beginning. Verse 1 starts with Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. A little bit later, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, which is not far from the temple. You have to walk a a good distance, but there's a valley in between the temple area and the Mount of Olives. So it could have been an hour later. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I believe Jesus jumped over the first question and answered the second and the third question because they were referring to the time when the temple would be destroyed completely, not one stone. Now, some people say that was fulfilled in 70 AD when Titus sacked Jerusalem and burned the temple and destroyed it. However, there is supposedly, if Temple Mount, or what is considered Temple Mount now, is the correct location of the previous temple, the temple that was rebuilt from the Temple of Solomon, if that's the correct location, there's still a Western wall that was never torn down. So maybe Jesus' prophecy has to be fulfilled yet in a future time when the rest of that wall is torn down. We don't know. There's speculation that Temple Mount was over near Mount Zion because that's the only place where running water is and they needed running water for the sacrifices. And that's another, uh, another study in itself but you can look it up on the internet. It's very interesting. All right, let's not even focus on the first question. Tell us when these things shall be. What shall be the sign of your coming was number two, and the end of the age was number three. And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. So the first sign of the last days is deception, And deception is more rampant now in the world than it ever has been because of technology, because of the way you can cause uh, nations, people in the nations of the world to believe something if you just plug it into mass media, into Facebook, into news programs, just, uh, uh, just get the word out there and you can get people to believe something that's not even true. That's not even true. If you say it often enough, you can can, uh, persuade people to believe that. But anyway, Jesus said, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and of rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass but the end is not yet for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places or various places. Then Jesus said in Matthew 24, eight, all these are the beginning of sorrows. That's how he describes the beginning of this time of great trouble on the earth. He doesn't call it the great tribulation for seven years. He calls this portion the beginning of sorrows. And there's some people who are preterists who believe Matthew 24 was already fulfilled back in 70 AD when Titus destroyed Jerusalem. However, the Romans were in charge of that area, and the Roman Empire was not destroyed until 476 AD. So for nation to be against nation and kingdom against kingdom, there had to be a dissolution of the Roman Empire. So, I don't believe it was fulfilled historically. Then in verse 9, he says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, he's talking to the disciples, but they're a representative group of all the disciples yet to come. If the pre-tribulation rapture was true, he never would have worded it this way. He wouldn't have said, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. I know some people say, well, he was preaching to primarily a Jewish audience and God will deal with the Jews in a very profound way in that seven year period of time called the tribulation period. But to me, that breathes of anti-Semitism. No, he was speaking to the church. And they were the representatives of the church to come. And he said, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. That may be 50 years off for all we know. Don't jump to conclusions. But then he said, many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Well, who's going to be offended? Sinners? I don't think so. Adulterers? Drug users? Thieves? Who's going to be offended? Those who will be offended are those who have a shallow commitment. The seed was sown on stony soil, and when tribulation comes, they're offended. They stumble. I'm not going to stand up and say I'm a Christian if all this backlash is going to come on me. Who's going to be offended and who's going to be betrayed? He said they will betray one another and hate one another. Those who take a strong stand for the biblical stance. Those are the ones who will be betrayed. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the King James says, iniquity shall abound. The love of many will grow cold or wax cold. Again, Who's that talking about? It's talking about those who have love for God, love for truth, love for people, but that love will dissipate and disappear when things get too tough, when lawlessness abounds, when it's like Sodom and Gomorrah everywhere in an overwhelming way. But Jesus said, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Who's he talking about enduring to the end? Someone may offer, well, there's going to be people saved during the tribulation period, but I've heard it taught that the Holy Spirit will leave the world when the church is caught up in the rapture. Well, if the Holy Spirit leaves the world, who can be saved? Because no one can be saved except the Spirit draw him. He who endures to the end shall be saved. And verse 14, you talk about powerful, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. Who's going to preach the gospel of the kingdom? Newly saved people during the tribulation era? No, it's the elect of God. It's not a band of 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and I've heard it said that way. It's the church made up of Jews and Gentiles who are one in Christ. Then Jesus said in verse 15, Therefore, when you see, he didn't say when the people who are part of that tribulation era see it. Again, he's speaking to representatives of the church, disciples who represent all disciples yet to come. He said, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand. And if you want to do some research into it, the abomination of desolation is mentioned in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, and chapter 12, verse 11. That's Daniel eleven, thirty-one 31 and 12, 11. And it talks about defiling the holy place in the temple. So the temple's got to be rebuilt in the last days. I believe that for the abomination of desolation to take place. The abomination of desolation is the worst abomination ever committed by the human race. And the Bible said that the Antichrist, the son of perdition, will stand in the temple of God professing that he is God, and the people will worship the beast. And that will be the abomination because, see, the mystery of iniquity and the mystery of godliness are kind of related The mystery of godliness was that God was manifested in the flesh, and they called him the devil. The mystery of iniquity is that Satan will completely possess a human body, will be manifested in the flesh, and they'll call him God. And that will be the abomination that brings desolation on the planet. And Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, see, you'll know the times and the seasons. You'll know when this thing is all being set and the stage is being set for the final conclusive end. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing in those days. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes and pray that your flight be not in winter or on the Sabbath. Verse 21, for then shall be great tribulation. For then there will be great tribulation. That's the first time you find Jesus referencing great tribulation after the man of sin is exalted in the temple, proclaiming that he is God. For then will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days should be shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. The word elect simply means chosen. The same Greek word, eklektos, is translated elect and translated chosen. We are part of the chosen generation. Jesus said, you've not chosen me. I have chosen you and because we are chosen of God, eclectos, we are elected of God. And he said those days would need to be shortened so that the elect would be able to survive. Think of that. He's not talking about just those who are saved during the tribulation era. Then he said, if anyone says to you And again, he's talking to representative disciples. If anyone says to you, lo, here is the Christ, or lo, there is the Christ, don't go after them. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders. I've told you beforehand, if they say to you, he's in the desert, don't go out, or he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Every eye will see him. Every eye. It will not be an invisible coming where only the church sees him and disappears. It will be so illuminating worldwide that every single person will behold him when he comes back again. And then in verse 29, he said, immediately, immediately after the tribulation of those days, shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, the stars shall fall from heaven, the powers of the heaven shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now listen to verse 31, and he shall send his angels after the tribulation of those days. He shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And I like the way Mark 13 verse 27 says it. And then he shall send his angels, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost part of the earth, that's those who are still alive, to the uttermost part of heaven. Those are the ones who are asleep in Jesus. He will bring them all together for that grand event, the last day of this age. Jesus said, him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out, but I will raise him up at the last day. Martha said concerning Lazarus, when Jesus said, your brother will rise again, she said, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. If she was wrong about that, Jesus would have corrected her and said, oh, no, no, that will happen seven years before the last day but instead he agreed with her. And you need to agree with him. And I need to agree with him. And we need to prepare ourselves for what is yet to come, because part of the reason I believe many will be offended is because they thought they would escape. And they were deceived by a movie, by a book, by an opinion, instead of listening to the word of God in its purity. Now in the next episode, of revealing the true light, I'm going to focus on the word wrath and compare it to the word tribulation. And then, hopefully, we'll bring this series to a close. Thank you for listening. Prepare your heart.
0: Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light, and thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global Internet family.